All right, Genesis, grab your Bibles, open them up. We've been plowing through, uh, getting started in the book of Genesis. We could spend years there. Um, We are taking a little slower pace, but Genesis 1 and 2 have been amazing to see God create the world and people, his goodness. And then we're going to get to Genesis 3 today, and it's kind of a pivot point in all of Scripture uh, where things kind of go south here and sets a new trajectory for some rough waters ahead. So this is a fitting message for my first one back. It's just kind of rough from here on out, so that's going to do it. Uh, Genesis 3. We were actually in this text not too long ago. When we did our Gospel Pathway series, we looked at what's the problem. We tried to better understand what sin is. There's so much in this chapter. We're not going to kind of pick it all apart. Um, but I would encourage you to go back to that uh, message in that series to kind of refresh yourself on what exactly is sin and why is it such a big deal. Uh, but today we're going to focus more on what are we supposed to do about it. What are, what are we supposed to do about this? What, what are you supposed to do about the fact that you have disobeyed a holy God? What are you supposed to do about the fact that you have lied before, that you have been self-centered, that you have been insecure, that you have been greedy and selfish and uh, coveted and lusted? And like, what, like that's happened. Like that's, that's a reality in your life. You've offended and broken the commandments of a holy God. That's where you're at now. What are you supposed to do about that? Or what are we supposed to do about the fact or the reality that in your future you will face more temptation to continue to disobey God? That temptation is just a part of your life. That you're going to face it every day. Like, do you know how to deal with temptation more than just don't do it? Just don't do it. It's wrong. Don't do it. Do you know how to deal with your past failures more so than just kind of cover them up and let's not talk about them and let's just move on? Like, how are we supposed to face temptation as followers of Jesus? How are we supposed to deal with our own brokenness and sinfulness as followers of Jesus? Uh, We need to figure that out. And in Genesis 3, we get uh, what's referred to as the the doctrine of original sin. And what I'm saying by that is, like, this is ground zero for where everything went wrong. Like, Like, this is ground zero for the brokenness in our world. This is ground zero for the brokenness in our own life. Like, this is where it happened. This, what happened in Genesis 3, set a trajectory for what we've experienced in human history, what you've experienced in your life, our own struggles, the struggles in our world. Like, this is, this is original sin, set a new trajectory. And here's the reality where it kind of lands for us uh, personally, is you're a sinner. I know that's kind of a churchy word that gets thrown around a lot, but, but you're a sinner. You were born a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Like, it's in our nature. Right? And it's helpful just to admit it. Right? Just, it, just say it out loud. I'm a sinner. Yeah, some of you participated. The ones that didn't, you're worse sinners. Right? <laughs> no, we're all broken. Right? We have our issues. Like, we, we struggle. We're, 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 we're sinful people. But, and that doesn't mean, like, you're not a nice person or you can't do good things. Um, but, sh- but things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And you're not the way you're supposed to be. Like, there, there's something of God's design that's fractured and broken. And, and we can tend to look at ourselves like, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad of a sinner, right? Or we can look at other people's failures and think, oh, well, I would never do that. Like, I got my issues, but I would, I would never do that. I would never fail in that way. I would never do that, right? Just like Peter would never deny Christ. You know, but situations change. And then you got arrested, and it was late, and we kind of got scattered, and then I was in a crowd, and I saw them were mistreating Jesus, and then all of a sudden this girl just asked me directly, and it's like, ah, and I did it. 
And if you're going to live the Christian life, you need to accurately assess the threat level. And you could totally fail in that way. And you could totally get caught up in that sin. And you are not above that. You could totally wreck your life with, with making those few bad choices. And if the circumstances were different, and if the situation, and all of a sudden it just ended, you could totally mess up your life with sin. You are not above that. And to live the Christian life, we have to accurately assess the threat level. You're a sinner. It's a sinful world. Temptation is a part of our experience. So what are we supposed to do about it? How are we to live as people who have already blown it? And how are we to live as people who know we're going to face more temptation to blow it again? And and how is this story of the fall, of Adam and Eve's failure, supposed to be helpful? Not just inform us of what's happened in history, but how is this story helpful to us as sinners? And you really, it's helpful to see this account through the original audience. Moses wrote this. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. They're wandering in the wilderness, getting ready to go in the promised land. And this story has meaning or a lesson for that situation and for us. So what's the lesson in this story for them and for us? Now, I'm going to get into reading some passages. You're probably pretty familiar with Genesis chapter 3, but I would like to just kind of do a quick flyover telling of the story. Uh, I would encourage you to read the whole thing later on today, but we're going to look at a few passages in the chapter more closely, but let's just kind of give an overview of the story. It starts out with a talking serpent. Now, some of you might be like, I'm stumped. You lost me right there. Like, that just kind of seems weird and fairy tale-ish, um, but you have this talking serpent. It's like, could, could animals talk before the fall? Was there communication between people and animals that are different now? I don't know. Eve doesn't sound too surprised to be talking to a serpent. Uh, Or is this serpent just kind of possessed and she's kind of caught off guard in a naive way? Like, what's happening? And who is this serpent? Well, in Revelation, which we'll get to uh, in January, we get kind of clued into this a little bit more. But uh, it's called the, or he's referred to as the ancient serpent, uh, or the serpent of old, who is Satan, the devil. And now if you're like tripping over that, like, well, that just seems weird. Um, But I'm telling you, if you have trouble with the supernatural, you're going to have all kinds of problems in the Bible. And we believe as followers of Jesus that there's more to this world than what we see. Like Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, that we don't just fight against flesh and blood. Like there's more going on than this, this conflict. There's like this conflict. There's a spiritual world and spiritual conflict that's happening. And this character that gets introduced in Genesis 3 doesn't like make an appearance and then just go away. He's active in the storyline. He's referred to as uh, having schemes, deceitful schemes. Uh, Paul says that he's uh, blinding the hearts and minds of unbelievers. Peter says that he's like a, a roaring lion that's prowling around looking to devour people. Like he's an active character of deception in the story that we find ourselves in. So this serpent uh, begins to question the word of God to Eve and kind of challenge and raise doubts and uh, leads Eve to disobey God because God put them in the garden and said, hey, you can eat of all these trees, just not this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, because if you do, you're going to die. And, and the serpent kind of questions that and kind of raises doubt and leads uh, Eve into temptation to disobey. And she eats of the fruit. She gives some to Adam. Their eyes are opened um, they, they make some fig leaves, some, some inadequate clothing, and they hide when God comes in the garden looking for them. God calls them out, uh, and uh, there's some, some shame and some guilt and some blaming starts. Like, there's this blame game. Like, Adam blames his wife. 
You kind of wonder how that went. It's not in the Bible, but on the eighth day, Adam slept alone. That's what happened, right? <laughs> he blames his wife. It's like, it, and God, it's the woman that you gave me, right? Well, Eve blames the serpent. Everybody's blaming everybody. And there's this kind of victimhood mentality. Like nobody's taking responsibility. But it's tough to blame your environment. Like you're in the Garden of Eden. You're set up for success. It's not hereditary. Like, but they, but they want to push blame out where they want to, it's somebody else's fault. Nobody's taking responsibility. And God issues these judgments, punishment. He addresses the serpent. He addresses the woman. He addresses the man. And then he kills an animal. First time in history, he kills an animal. And he makes adequate clothing for Adam and Eve. And then he, he kicks them out of the garden. Puts an angel guarding their access back into the garden to the tree of life. But it's not God keeping them from eternal life. It's God keeping them from eternal life as sinners. He's saying there's some brokenness that needs to be resolved before this relationship and this eternal relationship is restored. And if you read this, you're like, I don't know if the punishment fits the crime. It seems harsh. Go back and listen to uh, that message uh, in Gospel Pathways when we were in this text. We deal with a little bit more there. But another thing I want to point out is this wasn't like a curveball to God. It wasn't like God made this perfect world and he had this beautiful plan and you go and mess it up and now I got to kind of jump in with plan B and figure out how to fix this thing. This is part of God's plan that is unfolding. And one of the ways we come to that conclusion, if we can look at this text through the lens of what's talked about in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 1. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Even as he chose us in him before what? The foundation of the world. When's the foundation of the world? That's like Genesis 0, right? Before Genesis 1 got in, like he laid the foundations of the world. So before Genesis 1, Genesis 0, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So this is all according to the purpose of his will. And this is the reason, for the praise of his glorious what? Grace. Now, this is what's happening. God is saying, you are not just going to know me as creator, God. You're also going to know me as savior, God. And this is part of God's plan that's unfolding. Now, okay, I'm sure that gives you plenty to talk about. But what's the lesson of the story? Like, why is this in here? Why are we being told this? What, what's the point? What are we supposed to do as sinners? Like, we've been kicked out of the garden. We've been separated from God. What's the point? What's the lesson? And what are we to do as sinners who will face more temptation in this world? Who that serpent is still active deceiving God's people? How are, we, how are we to live with this? Because remember, the Israelites are getting this before they go into the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. Like their own kind of Eden. And in there, they're going to face more temptation. And they get this story of their ancestors who say, hey... These guys had a pretty cool living situation too. And here's how they messed it up. So don't you go making the same mistake. So what is the lesson that we can learn from them to avoid it? Let's jump into this. So Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Why is he telling us this? What's the point behind these words? He says the serpent was more crafty. 
Again, Ephesians 6, when, when Paul's talking about spiritual warfare, and it's like we don't fight against flesh or blood, he's saying um, the devil has deceitful schemes. Like it's football season, so if you're, you're going into a football game, you come up with a scheme. Here's our offensive scheme to face this defense. It's a plan. It's thought out. He's saying, listen, the devil is good at what he does, and he has thought it out, and he has deceitful schemes, and he is crafty, and you have to see the warning. Like, guys, this isn't something to take lightly. You're going into this promised land. He's crafty. He's deceitful. He's got plans and schemes. Like, you need to have your guard up. You need to be ready for this. And then the serpent says to the woman, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? So he's just raising some doubts. He's just going to raise in some doubts. He's twisting God's word, and he slanders God's character. He slanders God's character. Did you see that? He says, did, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Like, I'm just asking. I don't know. I mean, I'm, just, I'm innocent here. I'm just asking. Is that what he said? And it's a twist. It, like, God goes from being generous in 2, 16, and 17, saying, you shall eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. So that what God is saying, like, you can eat of all these trees, just, just not this one. And the serpent comes in and is like, did God say you can't eat of any of these trees? I'm just asking for a friend. Like, man, that sounds, like, that sounds stingy, right? God is generous, and now he's just with a question, is, is posing God to be this stingy God. And like, wow, he is crafty. So he did that with just one question? And then he goes to the next level, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, Eve follows suit here. See, where the serpent distorted and twisted God's word, Eve kind of takes the bait, and she diminishes and adds to God's word. Did you notice that? She left out a very important word, and she added things. When I say she diminishes God's word, she left out the word every. She says that, yeah, we can eat of the trees of the garden. That's not what God said. God said, you can eat of every tree of the garden, just not this one. But when Eve repeats it back, it's like, yeah, he said we can eat of the trees. And there's just kind of this diminishing of God's generosity in what he said. And then she adds to God's word. Because he said, he said we can't even touch it. God never said that. He never said that. Now, if I was told, don't eat of that tree or you're going to die, probably wouldn't climb that tree. There's plenty of trees. Let's pick a different one. But that's not what God said. So, so what Eve does is she diminishes God's word and she adds to God's word. And guys, people still do that today. And it often comes before disobedience. There, there's a diminishing of what God says. There's a twisting of what God says. There's a, an adding to what God says that kind of sets up disobedience. Like I, God is for me. He loves me and he wants me happy. Therefore, I can, you know, da-da-da-da, fill in the blanks. It's like, is that, is that what God says? Is that what he means when he said that? Is you kind of like twisting some things? Did you diminish the context of that verse? Did you kind of add to it so that you could justify your behavior? Like, like that kind of disobedience still happens today. So she leaves out the word every. She adds not even to touch it. She diminishes God's word. She adds to God's word. And it leads to her disobedience. 
Now, you take this story, and you kind of see this in the grand narrative of all of Scripture. There's a wonderful contrast that needs to be made. Because the serpent came and tempted Adam and Eve. And in doing so, he twisted the words of God to lead to their disobedience. But there's a time at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's taken out into the wilderness and tempted by Satan. And Satan in that time does the same thing. He presents a twisted version of God's word to lead to unfaithfulness on the part of Christ. But every time Jesus answers accurately handling the word of God. And you get this, on one hand, this beautiful picture of where Adam and Eve fail, Christ succeeds. Right? Where Adam and Eve fail, Christ succeeds. That's why sometimes in Scripture, uh, Christ is referred to as the second Adam. Because in Romans 5, it says where sin entered the world through one man, right? so, which was Adam. Well, through one man, Christ, we get redemption. We get life. So, so we kind of share in the failure of Adam. Like he said, this is ground zero, right? This is original sin. This sets the trajectory of our brokenness individually and as a world. Well, Christ, in his success where Adam and Eve failed, sets a new trajectory that through faith, we don't have death, we have life. We get reconciled back to God. So you get this beautiful picture of like where Adam and Eve failed, Christ succeeds, and we get to share in his victory, just like we shared in Adam's failure. Amen? That's good news. But on the other hand, there's also just a really practical lesson that, hey, when you're facing temptation, it's really important to accurately know the word of God. Because you see somebody who mishandled it fail, and you see somebody who handled it properly succeed. And you see the importance of knowing the truth and facing temptation, because knowing God's word is not just for your knowledge, it's for your holiness. And if you're ignorant here, you're vulnerable out there. Right? If you're ignorant here, you're, you're vulnerable out there. And that's why as a church, when we talk about raising up mature disciples, in Ephesians 4, when Paul's talking about spiritual maturity, he's like, so you're not going to be tossed to and fro like a child with every wind and wave of doctrine and kind of susceptible to the devil's deceitful schemes. You're not going to be so easily tricked when Scripture's twisted and lies are given that you're going to be able to discern that. Well, here's what happens. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the twist here becomes an outright lie. God said you're going to die. He's like, no, I totally disagree with that. That's not true. You're not going to die. There's a downplaying of consequences, right? It's not a big deal. You're not going to die. Don't overreact. You're not going to get caught. It's not going to make a difference. Like there's just kind of this downplaying of consequences and this twisting of, of scripture, the raising of doubt of God's character now has kind of given birth to just outright disagreement. I just don't agree. God's lying to you. He said this, I say that. And now you've got a choice of which one you're going to believe. Where are you going to go with? And something false is offered. Something false is offered in an appealing way. And what it is is moral autonomy. Like, you, you don't need God to tell you what's right and what's wrong. Like, you could do that yourself. You could be like God. You can decide what's right and wrong. You, by yourself, get to determine what's good and bad. And doesn't that sound awesome? Like, isn't that what people want? Like, I come up with my own truth. I'll decide what's right and what's wrong. 
I'll make the decisions for myself. Like this moral autonomy, and it's, it's like kind of put on this platter. Like, wouldn't that be nice? You can be like God. You don't need God to tell you right and wrong. You can do it yourself. And it's seen as appealing. It's not appealing. It's a lie. It leads to death. Like God is our, is our fulfillment and our satisfaction and our joy. He's like, you're surely not going to die. But death in the Bible, and even for us today, it's not the opposite of existing. Like, like death doesn't mean you cease to exist. Like even now, we believe that when somebody dies, everybody lives forever somewhere. Now you don't cease to exist. When the Bible talks about dying or death, what it means is like you're cut off from the land of the living. Right? And that's what happened. They were kicked out of Eden. They were separated from a life-giving God in the tree of life. Death happened. Like they were separated. Now, what can we learn from this? Like, like if we're the Israelites and we're getting ready to go into the promised land, how do we avoid making the same mistake? And Moses is giving this story to his people on this adventure of taking the promised land. What for? What's the lesson? Or what's one of the lessons? Now, it's, it's football season, so you've got to bear with me. But, but it, this is a story form. But what if it was like game film? All right? You're going to sit down with your team, and you're going to watch some game film before your next opponent. You're like, hey, this is the opponent that we're going to face, so let's watch some game film to learn from him. He's crafty. Did you see that, guys? He's, he's pretty tricky. We've got to be ready for that. Right? He, he's going to twist God's word, so you've got to be ready for that. Don't... don't don't be lax in God's word. This is the opponent that we're going to face as we go into the promised land and we're going to face temptations. So we've got to be ready for him. So guys, here's the game plan. When we get into the promised land, nobody eat any fruit. No. It's because it's not what it's about. In fact, they brought the grapes back. They're like, this is, this is some good fruit, right? It's deeper than that. And what we see here is there is a crafty attack on God's character in this temptation. Is God stingy? Is he keeping good stuff from you? Is he lying to you? Does he not want what's best for you? Is he holding out on you? Is he holding you back? Can he even be trusted? Do you even need him? And there is an eroding irreverence. You see that? There's this subtle eroding irreverence. Because up until this point in scripture, what do we know of God? He just speaks and things happen. He's this almighty, awesome creator God. Everything obeys him, and it's good, and he makes man, and he breathes life into him, and he gives him a woman, and he puts him in a garden. Like, everything is awesome, right? Not the Lego movie, like legit. Like, this is incredible. And then you get to chapter 3, and all of a sudden, it's like, can we even trust this guy? Like, does he even really know? I mean, like, it's just shady now. And usually, you disrespect God before you disobey him. Usually you disrespect God before you disobey him. And it's actually easier to see in Hebrew than in English, but you can see it in the English. But in, in Hebrew, if you're reading the first four chapters of Genesis, in Genesis 1, um, the word Elohim is used to talk about God. And it's just kind of a general a name for God. It's God the creator, a powerful creator, which is very fitting in Genesis 1, because that's what he's doing. He's just making things. He's creating things. He's the uh, author and origin of all things. But Genesis 2 through Genesis 4, whenever it's referred to God, he uses the name Yahweh Elohim. It's like the personal 
covenant-keeping name for God. And every time in Genesis 2 through 4, Yahweh Elohim is used, except for the first five verses in chapter 3. When the serpent begins to talk about God, he doesn't talk about God like a promise-keeping, personal God. It's just general, that, that creator God. And Eve follows suit. She doesn't recognize or talk about God as this personal, loving, promise-keeping God. She just refers to God as creator God, distance. And there's a change that happens. Because listen, guys, a weakened respect for God is the prerequisite to disobeying God. A weakened respect for God is the prerequisite to disobeying God. Because a small God, an unloving God, an unjust God, a stingy God, a no-fun God, that's a lot easier to disobey than a big, powerful, loving, joyful, just God, a generous God, a a personal God, a promise-keeping God. Why would you ever disobey that God? So to get to disobedience, let's, get, let's just begin by eroding the character of God, the worship of God, the awe of God, because we're going to disrespect God before we disobey God. We're going to dishonor God before we disobey him. Guys, reverence is the key to, holy, to holiness. Reverence is the key to holiness. And I want you to see the warning here. Like you're getting ready to go into the promised land? Where there's going to be other temptations, boy, you better keep a, a big view of God. That's what he's saying. You're, you're getting, we're getting ready to go into the promised land. And don't, don't let your guard down because this is what happened in Eden. And there's deceptive lies that are coming our way. And if you don't want to disobey God in those circumstances, then you keep a high view of God in your life. You're getting ready to go into the promised land. You better keep a high view of God. Oh, you, you're taking that job? Oh, you're going on that vacation? Oh, you got invited to that party? Oh, you go to that school? And you want to avoid temptation? Then you better keep a big view of God. Now, guys, we've we got to press on because there's so much in there. But I want you to get with your connection group or, or some trusted Christian friends and, and talk about how do we guard our reverence for God? Like if this is kind of key in facing temptation, how do we guard our reverence for God? What can you do to keep a big, accurate view of God? Your holiness is connected to it. All right, but let's, let's press on because our, our problem is a bit more complex than just facing future temptation. Like when it comes to sin, we're in it. Like it's just not future sin. Like we're in it. Like we've been kicked out of Eden. Like this is the reality that we live in. So what are we supposed to do about it? Let's look at their failure and then right after their failure. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that, she was, that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired... To make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, if you want a closer look at those verses, go back again and look at that message in Genesis 3 from our Gospel Pathway series. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, here's what happens. Like, 
they sin. You ever have those, like, where you, you kind of get wrapped into temptation, you, you, you do something you shouldn't have done, and as soon as it's over, you're like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I look at that? And you just kind of have that shame and guilt, and it's like, oh, you're just, you're kind of wrestling with that? Anybody? Has anybody been in a situation where you've had so much shame, you're just like, I just want to go hide somewhere? Nobody? Just me? Or a few people? Okay. So this summer, uh, it was my youngest daughter Rudy's birthday, and she wanted to take three of her cousins to a water park. So uh, March night, we take her to a, a water park. I don't know when the last time you've been to a water park, but talk about needing to cover up. I was like, man, where are the fathers? Like, kill something and put some more clothes on your daughter. Anyways, <laughs> side trip. <laughs> so we're at this water park, and we're in this line uh, to go on this water slide. And um, it's me and, and Rue and two of her friends, like uh, preteen girls. And I see that there's a weight limit for the ride. Now, I know enough to probably not ask preteen girls what they weigh, but I know what I weigh. And I'm trying to do some math, and I'm like, how's this going to work out? This is, we're going to cut it close. Uh, but I'm like, what's the harm? Like, it's a water slide. Like, we'll be fine. Let's just kind of sneak through there. Uh, and, we get, and we get up to, like, we're next in line. And the lifeguard says to the four of us, okay, step on the scale. I'm like, scale? What are you talking about? So I, we, I was like, it's, all right. It's like, I can't like walk back. Like just, I just quit. So it's like, I guess we're doing this with all these strangers. Let's, let's get on the scale. And we get on the scale thinking like, all right, let's, let's find out how this goes. Step on the scale. A siren goes off. <laughs> no, like red flashing light and like, woo, woo, you know, all that. And I'm with like three little girls. I can't be like, Mad seconds or something. Like, it's all me. Like, it's just all me. Like, I'm just turning around. So like, I just want to hide. Like, this is where we're at. Now, you kind of feel that, like, it's, it's exposed, right? You're exposed in that situation. There's no siren that went off in the Garden of Eden outside of their own heart. Like, in that moment, they're like, oh. They have this shame. They're like, we're exposed. Let's cover. Let's hide. They, they, they're, they're just, it just hits them. It was, it was tempting, and they did it, and there's like, oh, what did we do? And they're just they're exposed in their shame. And, he, and here's what they did, and we tend to do this in our sin. We cover and we hide. We, we, we cover and we hide. We just cover and we hide. Sweep it under the rug. Delete the history. Don't talk about it. Let's just move on. We're just going to cover and hide, and it doesn't fix anything. It doesn't fix anything. One, you can't hide from God. And you may feel like you can hide from each other, and you probably can for a while, but you can't hide from God. And you won't be judged by other people. You're going to be judged by God, and you can't hide from him. And two, fig leaves don't cut it. You know what I mean by that? You know what I mean when I say fig leaves don't cut it? Here, this is important for you to hear. What I, what I mean by that is we can't adequately, adequately deal with our sin on our own. Fig leaves don't cut it. You cannot adequately deal with your sin on your own. You can't undo it. You can't go back and fix it. You can't do enough good things ahead of it to kind of cancel out what you did. Like you cannot adequately deal with your sin on your own. But look what God does in this text. He seeks them out. He calls them out of hiding. They run and hide. They cover themselves up. But God goes to them. God's the first mover. He goes looking for them, and he calls them out of hiding. 
And then he gives them hope. Look over at verse 15. Now, I know we've covered this before, but it, it's good. He's addressing uh, the serpent in his judgments. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, the woman's offspring, and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. Now, one, you just got duped by this serpent. And this has consequences, like real consequences. And God is giving these judgments. You got to admit, it's a little comforting to have God address the person that just duped you. To look at that serpent and be like, I'm going to deal with you. All right? All right, I'm going to talk to you. But before that, I'm going to deal with you. Like, you just got to have some level of comfort to be like, okay, I blew it. He, he was tempting. And God's, God's going to deal with this. But there's a promise given in how he's going to deal with this mess. He says, this Eve is going to have a seed, a relative, a descendant someday. And you are going to wound him. But he is absolutely going to destroy you. Now, who's he talking about, church? Come on, say it like you mean it. Yes. Jesus was wounded on the cross. But in that act on the cross, he absolutely destroyed sin, Satan, and death. And brought our freedom, redeemed us back to the Father. It's like, this is a promise. He's like, I'm giving you hope of restoration and reconciliation in the midst of this, this chaos. So, so God, he goes towards, he seeks out Adam and Eve. He calls them out of hiding. He gives them hope and he provides for them. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So this was the first killing of an animal. He said, those fig leaves aren't cutting it. Let me give you better clothing. And he kills an animal. Now, who named these animals? Don't just fly by this event. Adam named these animals. This is the first killing of an animal. He said, all right, you blew it. Come here, Buffy. <laughs> like, not Buffy, right? <laughs> like, there's, there's a consequence. There, there's severity. There's the shedding of the blood that's a big deal. And God provides what they could not provide adequate covering for their shame. And he kills an animal and and he provides clothing for them. And who was killed to provide covering for us? Come on, church. Jesus. Jesus, the lamb of God who was slain to cover our iniquities. And that's why Paul talks about uh, being in Christ or putting on Christ or being clothed with Christ. Because as sinners, there is only one adequate covering, and that is what is provided to us by God and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross. So guys, without God, we would just cover and hide. That's how we would deal with sin. We would just cover and hide. We'd just sweep it under the rug. we just not want to talk about it. Let's just move on. We'll just make some fig leaves, try to get beyond this. But listen, we cannot adequately deal with our sin by ourselves. We can't fix it. We can't undo it. We can't do extra to cover it up. We need rescued by God. Are you hearing me when I say that? You need rescued by God. Look at me. There is nothing that you can do to undo your sin. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. You are in need of rescue by God. And church, God still seeks people out. 
he still calls people out of hiding. He still gives them the hope of Jesus Christ. And he still provides adequate cover of our shame. How great is our God. And don't miss the simple truth here in this text. Adam and Eve's failure did not stop God's love. They disobeyed him. They disrespected him before they disobeyed him. They sought things that only God could provide elsewhere. And in their failure, they ran and hid. But God went to them. God called them out of hiding. God gives them the promise of hope. God gives them adequate covering. Their failure didn't stop God's love. And hear me now, church. Your failure does not stop God's love. And you need to hear that. Your failure does not stop God's love for you. So when we look at the lesson in this story, what we need to understand is we need a big God to rescue us from sin, and we need a big view of God to keep us from sinning. We need a big God to rescue us from sin, because we're not doing that on our own. We're not going to come up with fig leaves. We're going to hide. It's inadequate. Like, God, you need to come and rescue us. And we need a big view of God to keep us from sinning. Because the prerequisite to disobeying God is often disrespecting God or dishonoring God. So when you look at this through the eyes of the situation of the Israelites who are getting ready to go into the promised land, they needed to have a big view of God. We're getting ready to go into this promised land. And there's other nations there that disobey God and dishonor God and they're going to offer temptation. And if you don't have a big view of God, you're going to be tempted to be like all the other nations, which they were. So guys, going into this, we need to have a big view of God. And we need to depend on God for our salvation, our deliverance, our rescue, right? Because this is established civilization. They got walled cities. These guys are like giants. They make us feel like grasshoppers. We need to trust in God to provide deliverance for us. And we can because he made a promise. He's going to see this redemption plan through. But it's not just for the Israelites, for us as sinners, We need to maintain a big view of God. Because if you don't maintain a big view of God, you're just going to want to fit in here. You're just going to care too much about being liked by all the other people. You're going to fall in love with here like it's your home. You're eventually going to get to the point where it's like, well, forget God. I'll decide what's right and wrong for me. I'll make my own choices. And we need to depend upon God for our salvation. Because we're not going to fix this mess that we're in but we can depend on God for salvation. All the more because we've seen his promise unfold. Christ has come. He was wounded on the cross, but he rose from the grave. Like how much more confidence should we have in this promise? So church, maybe you're hiding. Maybe you're just trying to cover up your sins on your own. Maybe you're just trying to do better. And you know what you've done and you're just trying to like, I'll get your life together. But your failure has not stopped God's love. And when we take communion, which you're going to do in a little bit, Paul tells us that every time we do it, we proclaim the death of Jesus Christ. And when we do it, I want you to hear it as God's call to you. Come out of hiding. Come out of hiding. I have adequate cover for you right here. 
your fig leaves aren't cutting it, and I still love you, come out of hiding. Trust in, in my provision and my forgiveness. And would you be filled with hope? Because here's a passage in the story we often maybe fly by, but look at verse 20. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. That is a shout of hope. The mother of all living? Like we were, we were told we're going to die and life is going to go on. And, and not just that, this is connected to the promise. Because this promise is coming through who? Eve. And so when Adam names his wife Eve, the mother of all living things, what he's saying is, God, I believe in your promise. Despite this brokenness that we're in now that we've just been kicked out of the garden, that I don't feel like it can get any worse, the hope that you have given me and this promise, I believe in it. And there's a shout of hope in the midst of darkness and brokenness. And we're in the midst of brokenness. But as people who believe in the promise, we should always have a shout of hope. And that's the kind of church we want to be. Yes, things are rough. Yes, things are broken. Yes, there's struggle. Yes, there's failure. But there's this promise. And we have adequate covering in Jesus Christ who reconciles back to God and he's coming back and he will wipe every tear from our eye and he will make all things new and he will put us back in paradise with God our Father forever. So no matter how dark it gets, there's this promise. And just like Adam says, my wife's name is Eve because she's the mother of all living things and through her will come life and the fulfillment of God's promise. Would we be people that always have that shout of hope? When you come to this table and be like, I just need adequate covering, would you go back to your seat and sing like people who believe in the promise? Amen? Let's pray. Father, I ask that by your spirit in this room that you would bless us with the unique emotion of both being broken over our sin and how we've dishonored you and disrespected you and it's led to our disobedience. And fill us with the hope that we are not left in our sin, that our failure has not stopped your love and you offer provision and promise and hope. Would we worship you like saved people? Pray this in your name. Amen.